There's no better hands to leave a church in than the hands of God. Amen? Well, years ago, a church was having a farewell dinner for their pastor. Uh, he and his family were moving out of state, so he was stepping down from his pastoral position at the church. And so at this farewell dinner, they're eating the food and giving speeches. And the pastor notices off to the side, there's a sweet little old lady from the church. She was a charter member of that church. And he noticed she's off to the side, her head is down, and she's crying. And so the pastor, feeling bad, walks over and puts his arm around her and says, Sweetie, you don't have to be so sad. The next pastor may be better than me. And she looked up and said, I doubt it. They told me the same thing five years ago, and then they hired you. (laughs) Oh, so goes church ministry. Amen. In the mid-1800s, there was a 21-year-old British Christian named Hudson Taylor. And he had a burden on his heart to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in China. And so at a very young age, I believe he was 22, by the time he finally made it to China, he was going to dedicate his life to serve the Lord in China and tell people about Jesus Christ. And he did, in fact, give the next 51 years of his life to leading those Chinese people to Christ. He founded early on in his ministry in China, the China Inland Mission. And Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission was responsible for bringing 800 Christian missionaries into China. It was responsible for planting dozens of churches and starting 125 Christian schools, leading some 18,000 Chinese people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor was a prolific writer. Many of his quotes have inspired Christians for over a hundred years. And I'd like to share one of his most famous quotes with you. I think it is so, so good. Hudson Taylor wrote these words. He wrote, We wish to see churches and Christian Chinese presided over by pastors and officers of their own countrymen, worshiping the true God in the land of their fathers, in the costume of their fathers, in their own tongue wherein they were born, and in edifices of a thoroughly Chinese style of architecture. Architecture. Now, this missionary practice uh, may not seem real novel to you, but it was absolutely revolutionary in the mid to late 1800s. You see, in those days, if an English missionary went into China or another country on the other side of the world, it was typical for that English missionary to come in and they would build English buildings and uh, they would speak mainly English uh, to the Christians who were converted and they would wear British clothes and they would mainly eat British food. But Hudson Taylor practiced indigenous ministry. He dressed like the Chinese people. He spoke the local Chinese dialects. Uh, He lived like they lived. And when it came to building churches in China, he didn't foster the dependency on himself. He raised up Chinese Christian men and equipped them to pastor churches in their own villages. So think about it. Indigenous Christian churches that aren't dependent upon foreign missionaries in order to survive. It's almost like Hudson Taylor was doing ministry in China the way that the Apostle Paul was doing ministry in the region of Galatia. 
Well, last week we took a, a closer look at Paul and Barnabas's ministry in that area of Galatia in modern day Turkey. We saw that he and his missionary partner Barnabas penetrated four key cities there in Galatia. First, they went to Pisidian Antioch and from there into Iconium and then into Lystra and Derbe. It's uh, recorded for us in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And we saw that from a human standpoint, Paul and Barnabas's ministry was an absolute disaster. <laughs> from a human standpoint, it was. Remember what happened in that first town of Pisidian Antioch. After a number of weeks, they were basically given a legal cease and desist order. In other words, you better shut up preaching about Jesus. And just to make sure that you do, we're going to kick you out of town. So they're basically picked up by the shirt tails and tossed out of Pisidian Antioch. And so they brush off the, tea, the uh, dirt from their clothes and from the bottom of their sandals, and they move on to town number two, Iconium. And remember what happens, Iconium. Stuff's going pretty well for a while, but after maybe a few weeks, possibly a few months, things start to head south there in Iconium. Uh, this band of guys come together with this plan to rough up Paul and Barnabas and then stone them to death. And so Paul and Barnabas had to hightail it out of Iconium. They go to the third town, the town of Lystra. And then after a few weeks in Lystra, those Paul haters catch up with him. And they do, in fact, start throwing rocks at his head. They make sure that as those rocks hit him, he is knocked unconscious. And they drag his lifeless body out of town and drop him off in the dirt, expecting the hyenas and the, the vultures to devour his carcass. But what happens? After a few minutes, he regains consciousness. He stands up, brushes the dirt off his clothes, turns around, and goes right back into the town of Lystra. The next day, he and Barnabas head off for the fourth town of Derby. Uh, from a, a, a non-Christian standpoint, from a secular standpoint, this ministry in Galatia was a bust. <laughs> it was an absolute failure. It wasn't seeming to go so well for, for Paul and Barnabas. But Paul seemed to have this motto, no pain, no gain. It didn't seem to bother him too much that he was being beat up and, and persecuted at every turn. He was undaunted in his mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ there in Galatia. But many Christians didn't understand that. They didn't get it. And honestly, many Christians don't get it today either. Some of the new Christians in Galatia must have thought that Paul had lost his mind to be heading back into the city where he had just been stoned within an inch of his life. Paul uh, simply turned to them and, and said these words in Acts 14, verse 22. He says, well, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, no big deal. Yeah, it's true that over in Pisidian Antioch, I've got this cease and desist order and we were tossed out of town. Yeah, it's true that over in Iconium, this group of, uh, of non-Christians gathered together and wanted to rough us up and, and stone us to death. Yeah, I, I fully remember and understand uh, in, in very up-close and personal detail what was done to me in the city of Lystra. And uh, I felt those rocks, every one of them that hit me. And I remember waking up and having the, the worst splitting headache of my life after they'd stoned me, they thought to death. I understand all that persecution, but you know what? It just comes with the territory. I knew when I got into this Christian missionary thing that it was going to be hard, that there was going to be persecution. 
And I will not allow it to stop me from doing what Jesus Christ has called me to do. Absolutely nothing is going to stop us from telling people about Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up partway through verse 21 of Acts chapter 14. So make sure you're there in your Bibles. And as we go along today, you may want to have a piece of paper and a pen handy to jot down some notes along the way. Uh, We'll hit some good stuff in this message today because God's word is so, so good for us today. So I'm in Acts chapter 14, picking up partway through verse 21. Then they returned, Paul and Barnabas did, to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord to whom they had put their, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch in Syria, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there in Antioch of Syria a long time with the disciples. May God bless us as we study and, more importantly, apply his word to our lives today. At first glance, you might think there's not much going on in in these eight verses I just read to you. Paul and Barnabas don't visit any new towns. There are no new revivals. There are no accounts of new churches being planted or of Paul having any showdowns with pagan sorcerers like he had had on the island of Cyprus. But there is something very significant here, especially in verses 22 and 23. I want you to take a a fresh look at this map of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey that we've looked at over the past few weeks. And so this is a nice little map that shows in red their outgoing mission. So they were stationed there in Antioch of Syria, uh, not to be confused with Pisidian Antioch up there in the region of Galatia. So they headed out by boat from Antioch of Syria to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas had grown up. We read about that in Acts chapter 13. And they went through the island of Cyprus. Remember Sergius Paulus, the proconsul on the western side of the island. Paul led to his saving knowledge of Christ. He had that showdown with that uh, sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. And from Cyprus, they took a boat to the mainland, modern-day Turkey. And they took that boat over to Italia and then went inland to Perga. And remember, it was in Perga that their helper, John Mark, left them. And so after John Mark left, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, hoofed it over 100 miles over the uh, Antioch range, over the Pisidian mountain range, an elevation gain of over 3,500 feet. They went into Galatia, that inland area of modern-day Turkey. And remember those four towns? We just mentioned them again a few minutes ago. They went to Pisidian Antioch, and then to Iconium, and then to Lystra, and then to Derbe. These eight verses we just read a moment ago, that is their return trip. That's marked in purple. And so after ministering in Derby, they didn't go any deeper uh, into the area of Galatia. They turned around and revisited the towns of Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, went down the mountain range, back to Perga and Italia, and then they took their boat 
back to their home church of Antioch in Syria. And so this return trip doesn't seem too exciting at first glance, but as I mentioned, verses 22 and 23 are particularly important. You see, once Paul and Barnabas finished their missionary work in Derby, as they're going back through the cities, in verses 22 and 23, it tells us what they did on that return trip. It wasn't a new work, but it was a finishing of a work that was critical for the health of each of those churches in each of those cities. Uh, This return trip is our focus this morning, and here's why it's so significant. For centuries, Christian leaders have asked this question. How on earth could Paul roll into a town, lead people to Christ, and in a matter of just a few months, plant a self-sustaining church that survived and thrived without him? It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Uh, Some founders of churches, some church planners, pour 10, 20, 30 years of their lives into a church to get it self-sustaining and at a place where it can thrive without them. But Paul was doing this time and time again in a matter of, sometimes it was just a matter of weeks. How is that possible? It's a good question. Once Paul left town, somehow these churches carried on just fine without him. Even though these churches were filled with baby Christians who didn't know half the stuff about following Jesus Christ that most of us know today, even though they didn't know half of it, somehow these churches survived and even thrived in his absence. That's amazing. So what was Paul's secret sauce? What was his secret? How was he able to plant such successful, self-sustaining churches in such a short amount of time? Well, His secret sauce really wasn't that secret at all. It really wasn't. It wasn't even complicated. It was actually quite simple. And Luke, the writer of Acts, reveals Paul's secret sauce to us here in verses 22 and 23. Here are the three keys to building a healthy new church. And this is going to be our focus over the next few minutes. The three keys to building a healthy church. New church. Here we go. Key number one. Paul laid a foundation of Christ-centered gospel teaching. He laid a foundation of Christ-centered gospel teaching. Look again at verse 22, what it says there in Acts chapter 14. As Paul and Barnabas made their way back through towns uh, uh, like Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, they, according to verse 22, strengthened the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. So how did they strengthen them? Well, they strengthened them in the Word, didn't they? Absolutely. Uh, How did they encourage them? Well, they encouraged them in the Word. They encouraged them in the Word. They encouraged them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years later, Paul would write these words to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He would say, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sometimes Paul would get criticized because he wasn't particularly eloquent. 
there were other teachers running around from church to church that were evidently a lot more eloquent than, than Paul was. Speakers who were a lot more charismatic than Paul was. Speakers that on a scale of 1 to 10 would be several notches above where Paul was at with his speaking ability. But when it came down to it, he was not ashamed to say, I focused on one thing. I was laser focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. No matter what city Paul was in or who he was speaking to, his teaching was so laser focused on the DBR. Remember what that stands for? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was laser focused. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the foundation of Paul's teaching. It also provided the framework for Paul's teaching. And it was the heart of Paul's teaching. If I were to summarize Paul's teaching and preaching in three words, I would summarize it this way. You ready? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's Paul's preaching and teaching in three simple words. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Say that with me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Paul's teaching was all about Jesus. The foundation was Jesus. The framework was Jesus. The heart of the teaching was Jesus. It was all about Jesus. He didn't worry about fancy words. He didn't worry about how particularly eloquent he was. He didn't try to impress and astound his audience by waxing eloquently, he simply focused on Jesus through and through. So Paul's teaching was all about Jesus. And the Christian churches Paul planted didn't close their doors six months after he left town because there is no better or stronger foundation that a church can be built upon than the foundation of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again to glory. Amen? There is no better foundation, no stronger foundation that you could ever build a church upon than the foundation of Jesus Christ. To some of you, this may seem like a no-brainer, but you'd probably be surprised how many churches today are built on foundations other than Jesus Christ. They call themselves Bible-based. They call themselves Christian churches. But when it comes down to it, they are not built on a solid foundation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. So much preaching these days has not much more than a, a secular pop psychology pep talk with a, a little bit of scripture and a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. So it seems like a biblical sermon. So it seems like a Jesus focused message. But just as you cannot build a strong, enduring skyscraper on a shallow foundation, you cannot build a strong, enduring church on a shallow, milquetoast foundation. The strongest, healthiest, most enduring churches are those which are solidly built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Not watered-down Jesus, not sugar-coated Jesus, just plain Jesus, crucified and risen again. Amen? We don't need toast Jesus. We don't need watered down Jesus. We don't need sugar coated Jesus. We just need Jesus. We just need Jesus. It seems clear that in each town, Paul made sure that he left each church with a solid scriptural foundation. He made sure they had a solid grasp 
of the DBR of Jesus Christ. He made sure they had the two sacraments, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. And since the New Testament hadn't been written yet, he made sure they had a basic understanding of how to interpret the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus Christ's coming. Well, there's no doubt Paul and Barnabas laid a foundation of simple Christ-centered gospel teaching. And that was one of the strengths, one of the secrets to those churches' success even though oftentimes he would leave a town just weeks and planted that church. Well, there was a second key that's called out here in verse 23, the second key to building a solid, uh, self-sustaining church in any of these towns was this. Paul appointed and trained mature Christian men to pastor their church in his absence. Look again at verse 23. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The second key to a healthy new church is critical. In the New Testament, it's important to understand that these terms elders, pastors, overseers are all used interchangeably. An elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. An elder and pastor is an overseer. These terms are all used as synonyms in the New Testament. Every day churches rise and fall on leadership, even today. If a church's leaders are self-absorbed and shallow, any guesses how the congregation will tend to be? (laughs) If the leaders are self-absorbed and shallow, the church they lead will tend to be self-absorbed and shallow. If a church's leaders are humble and Christ-centered, guess how the congregation will tend to be? Well, if the leaders are humble and Christ-centered, the church they lead will tend to be humble and Christ-centered. I don't think I'll ever forget something one of my Bible college professors taught me when I was going through my seminary training to become a pastor. He said, after about seven years, a church becomes the lengthening shadow of the pastor. Uh, What on earth does that mean? What, What was he getting at? Well, he was getting at this. When we are parents, after a few years of our kids living in our own home, after a few years our kids begin to talk like us and act like us and react like us, don't they? Ever heard your four-year-old say something and you realize, oh, shoot, he learned that from me? (laughs) Ever seen your teenager do something and it embarrasses you a bit, but then you step back and realize... My teenager probably learned that from watching me. Our kids act and mimic and mirror what we say and do more than we'd like to admit at times. The same could be said about a congregation. After a few years, a congregation will tend to mirror both the strengths and the weaknesses of their pastor. If a pastor's teaching and preaching are shallow, The congregation's relationships with Christ will tend to be shallow. If a pastor doesn't prioritize prayer and evangelism, the congregation probably won't prioritize prayer or evangelism either. If a pastor doesn't prioritize children's or youth ministry, most most often the congregation won't prioritize them either. But the opposite is also true. 
If a pastor sets a good example of being faithful in prayer and studying God's word and loving people and prioritizing the next generation, the congregation will tend to follow in his footsteps. Now, that doesn't remove the responsibility of each individual Christian in that congregation to follow Christ well, even if their pastor is screwing up. But it is simply the fact that congregations will tend to mirror both the strengths and the weaknesses of their pastor over time. So you see, good leadership is necessary if a church is going to be healthy and persevere once its founder is gone. That's one, one of the reasons why James writes in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you who teach and lead and pastor will be judged more strictly. You see, God will always hold church leaders to a higher standard because the Christians in those congregations are listening to their teaching and to a large extent following their example. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and in Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 9, Paul has written down for us around 20 qualifications of an elder and pastor in a church. And over the centuries, Christians have wondered how on earth any new Christians anywhere in Galatia could have met some of these qualifications if Paul had just planted these churches a few weeks or maybe at most a few months before he was appointing elders in those churches. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Paul gives us this qualification for an elder. He says an elder and pastor must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. So we naturally ask, how could someone who just became a Christian a month or two earlier be qualified to preach or teach the gospel to others? It's a fair question. What about the qualification for an elder that Paul calls out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6? He says this, an elder and pastor must not be a recent convert. Wow, how on earth would any of these Christians in Galatia qualify to be an elder because weren't they all recent converts? Hadn't they all just accepted Christ at most a few months earlier? These are really important and good questions. But remember where Paul almost always went as soon as he arrived in a town. Where did he share the gospel first? Do you remember? Almost always he would share the gospel first in a Jewish synagogue. He did that each and every time he went into one of these towns in Galatia. And that's very significant. It's highly unlikely that Paul could have left new churches after such a short amount of time had not there been Jewish Christians in those churches who had spent years studying the Old Testament and praying for the coming of the Messiah and living highly ethical lives before they had ever heard of Jesus Christ and accepted him as Lord and Savior. Before Paul ever arrived into these towns, the Jews were digging into the Hebrew Scriptures and drawing as close to God as they knew how. And so when Paul came into town, it's not like he was just winning prostitutes and pimps and idol worshipers to Christ. And it's not like when he left a town and appointed elders, he was appointing a guy to be an elder who two months earlier had been a pimp or a prostitute at the local temple. It's not like that. In all likelihood, Paul was appointing largely in Galatia 
solidly moral Jewish Christians to be elders. Yes, they were new in the faith, but they weren't new in the word of God. They had studied the Hebrew scriptures most of their lives. And yeah, they were new to some of the Christian morality, but they certainly weren't new to the morality of the first three quarters of the Bible spelled out in the Old Testament scriptures. Don't miss this. No single elder or pastor had to lead or pastor alone. In every church, Paul and Barnabas raised up a leadership team. And so that was another key to this second, well, a second part to this second key of building self-sustaining healthy churches. He didn't just raise up an individual pastor. He raised up a team of pastors, a team of elders who could lead the church together. That's the primary model for the church uh, leadership that is described in the New Testament. Occasionally, like in the book of Titus, uh, Titus was sent to Crete to appoint elders in churches that didn't have an eldership board in them. And so there are times in the New Testament where a church didn't have a leadership team. But that is the go-to model of church leadership in the New Testament. That's the model we at Impact follow. I may be the lead pastor, but I don't lead unilaterally. I lead as part of an eldership board, as part of an eldership team. The elders and I make decisions together, and the staff and I largely make decisions together. So we have a leadership team here at Impact. We don't just have one man who's calling all the shots. And so this second key is so important, this key to building a self-sustaining, healthy church. Paul made sure to appoint mature Christian men to lead the church together in his absence. Finally, key number three, Paul trusted the Holy Spirit to protect and lead the church long after he was gone. Look again at verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This third key is so important and it's so often overlooked in churches today. I want you to listen to what Jesus told his 12 disciples in John chapter 16 verses 12 through 13 just a few hours before he was led to the cross. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, "I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth." Now that's pretty remarkable when you consider that Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher in the history of the world. Don't you agree? There's never been a teacher walk this earth who taught more effectively than Jesus Christ. Yet even Jesus left town before he had finished teaching his disciples all that they needed to know. There was still so much that he wanted to teach them, so much that they needed to learn, but they couldn't handle any more at that time. Uh, you've probably experienced that maybe in a high school class or uh, maybe in a college class, maybe in a seminar or a workshop you attended. You get to the end of that seminar or workshop and, and your information, oh, uh, it, it's an overload. Your, your brain has, has absorbed all that it can possibly absorb that day. You can't handle any more information. It's kind of like how it was with the disciples. As Jesus was about to be arrested and led to the cross, they couldn't handle any more information. And Jesus with that. He was okay with that. So what did he do? He left without any guilt or shame or regrets because he fully trusted the Holy Spirit to pick up where he had left off and lead his followers 
into all truth. It was the same way with Paul. The Apostle Paul had that same confidence and faith in the Holy Spirit. When it was time to move on to another town, he could move on without any guilt or shame or regret. Why? Because he was leaving the new Christians in the very capable hands of the Holy Spirit who would lead them into all truth, picking up right where Paul himself had left off. Far too often these days, Christian leaders have an inflated notion of their own importance. Well, you know, this church would have closed its doors years ago had it not been for my leadership. This church would be lost without me. This church wouldn't survive without me. Really? Really? Do you really have that low of an opinion of the Holy Spirit? Do you think the Holy Spirit is that inept, that unqualified, that incapable of leading a church in your absence, oh, high and mighty pastor that you think you are. God is not that feeble. Is God really that dependent on you to keep the doors of his church open? Did Jesus say on Pastor Jones, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Absolutely not. It is my privilege and my duty to serve as your pastor here at Impact. But this church will carry on and thrive with or without me. Because the Spirit of Jesus Christ, not Pastor Dane, is the head of this church. Amen? Jesus is the head, not the pastor. And what is true of pastors and elders in churches is also true of you in your own relationships. Parents, your kids will likely move out of your house long before you've taught them half of what they need to know to survive in this world on their own and to live for Jesus Christ with everything they've got. So what do you do? Well, you do what Paul did. You commit them to the Lord. You entrust them to his care. You place them in the Holy Spirit's hands. While they're still under your roof, you lay a solid biblical foundation for them. You introduce them to Jesus Christ. You teach them the gospel. You pray and read God's word with them every day. You take them to church every week. But sooner or later, you have to let your little birdies stretch their wings and fly and go bye-bye. Sooner or later, they're going to leave the nest. And when that happens, you're going to probably have a tendency to say to yourself, Oh, no. I, I, I didn't I didn't teach them about such and such or oh dang it. I, I forgot to warn them about the thingamabobs out there. There's always going to be something. Parents, I encourage you. Take a deep breath and do what Paul did. Commit them to the Lord Entrust them to the Lord and pray for your dear children every single day with tears. Of course, the third key doesn't just apply to parents. When you share Christ with your friends or co-workers or neighbors, when it's time to go, commit them to the Lord. Entrust them to the Lord's care. Trust the Holy Spirit to pick up where you left off. When a person you care about cuts you off and closes their ears to anything else you want to say, commit them to the Lord. Trust the Holy Spirit to pick up where you left off. I really encourage you, church, I encourage you, Christians, 
to begin forming a deeper, more trusting partnership with the Holy Spirit. Talk to Him. Be honest with Him. Tell Him, Holy Spirit, it's time for me to go. I've said all I can say and done all I can do for now. So it's up to you. It's up to you to lead them across the finish line. I place them in your capable hands and I trust you completely. Can you pray that? Can you mean that? Can you own that in your heart of hearts? Three powerful keys that we should never forget. Number one, lay a solid foundation of simple Christ-centered gospel teaching. Do this at church. Do this with your kids and grandkids. Do this in your friendships and in your relationships with others. Number two, raise up and train mature godly leaders. Before those kids or grandkids leave your house, raise them up to be mature godly leaders who can stand on their own two feet with the Holy Spirit. Number three, guiding them every step of the way. Trust the Holy Spirit to protect and lead those around you long after you are gone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word is so good. It's so rich. Lord, please forgive us when we have an inflated notion of our own importance. Lord, we think of ourselves sometimes as so critical. But Lord Jesus, we didn't save anyone around us. You did. You're the only one who's been able to save us. You're the only one that's been able to save those around us. So how did we possibly miss that you're the only one who can truly sustain those around us long after we are gone? Lord, we know that our lives here on earth are but a breath. And we do, oh God, Lord, want to live every life, every day of our life, doing what you've called us to do. We want to live for the glory of God. We want to invest in others. We want to teach them your word We want to raise them up to stand on their own two feet. Oh, God, we want to uh, foster a dependency not on ourselves, but a dependency on the Holy Spirit. Help us in this mission. And Holy Spirit, help us to trust you more. Some of our kids, some of our grandkids are out of our hands. We're very limited with how we can speak into their lives at this point, Lord. So I pray that you would speak into their lives on our behalf. Honor our prayers. Help us to pray in tears for those around us, Lord, that we desperately want to draw closer and closer to you. Help us to follow in Paul and Barnabas' footsteps. Lord, doing exactly what you've called us to do, saying what you've called us to say, doing what you've called us to do, but then being able to move on without guilt or shame or regret because we place all those who have been in our care temporarily squarely in your hands. And we know there's no better or safer place for anyone to be than in the hands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have some great marching orders today, don't we? We have some great marching orders. God has called us today to be in his word and sharing the gospel with others. He's called us to raise up independent Leaders around us who can follow God and and teach God's word to others. 
And he's called us to rely on the Holy Spirit more than ever before. We can only be in one place at one time. So we entrust all those many people in those many places that I can't be right now because I'm right here right now. I entrust all of them to the care of the Holy Spirit who can be in all places at all times and do the work of God for the glory of God. Amen. Let's partner with the Holy Spirit this week in all that we do. God bless you.